All right, welcome back, folks. We are incredibly excited to have Erica Buddington on Ed's Not Dead, aren't we, Case? Yeah. All right. Uh, the Twitter world is a buzz. It's going to be. It's going to be. Yeah. When once once <laughs> once folks know that we have Erica on. Erica, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. Welcome to Ed's Not Dead. Erica is a dean of students at a Bushwick middle. Middle school, uh, HBO Def Jam poet, author, YouTube sensation, and overall educator extraordinaire from Brooklyn, New York. She's in good old Brooklyn right now as we speak. Erica is also the chief curriculum officer for the Langston League, a culturally responsive, relevant curriculum design firm that specializes in student workshops, professional development sessions, and more. The Langston League is a team of unconventional educators seeking to address educational and opportunistic inequalities in at-promise neighborhoods through culturally relevant, responsive, fun, and equitable curriculum. The League's primary focus is literacy infused with, uh, help me out here, somebody, STEAMED. You got it. Okay. Did I get, did I get that right, Erica? Okay. You're going you're gonna, yeah. to tell us what that's about anyway. Um, uh, elements, science, technology, engineering, arts, mathematics, and the D is design. So, Erica, welcome again. We're, we're really excited to have you on Ed's Not Dead. Um, I'm excited to be here. Okay. Thank you for having me. Uh, our pleasure. So let's jump right in. Let's start with the Langston League. Tell us about the Langston League. What are your goals? And what should schools and teachers know about when bringing your team on board if they do? Well, so we're a group of really passionate educators. Um, and our goal is very simple. We want to help organizations design instructional materials for staff and students that are responsive to the cultural need of their students. So when I say cultural, um, I don't just mean where scholars are from, but I mean the diaspora, learning styles, their demographics, um, social emotional learning aspect, the learning partnership between the educator and scholar, and you know their most prevalent needs. And so, if you're bringing us on board, um, nothing, <laughs> nothing is a secret. Everything is transparent. We immerse ourselves in your school. We observe everything. Um, and then we have a full-on consultation with your staff, with a focus group of students and the administrators to really talk about outcomes so that we can create, um, innovate, or redesign this inclusive, engaging, and evolving instructional material that you've been envisioning this entire time. And so um, really, you want to bring us on board to do professional development, facilitate youth workshop or panel, or to design curriculum um, you should just know that we're going to be all up in your business. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's the, that's the yeah, way to be. That's awesome. So the focus yeah. of uh, the curriculum is through elements of STEAMED, as we just said. So what does it look like, sound like, um, ex maybe like any examples, and, and why the addition of design to kind of the old STEAM, I guess? Yeah. So we wanted our curriculum to be interdisciplinary. Um, and so Langston League is split into uh, two cohorts. One of our cohorts um, they're experts in their field. So they're, we have an architecture, an engineering, an urban gardening, a U.S. design and coding specialist, right? And the other um, cohort are experienced educators that have been in the field and have very interesting strategies that go for, that uh, range from gamification to narrative storytelling. And they partner on projects um, to build out something that is very interdisciplinary. We wanted to um, place an emphasis on because, of course, you know, the uh, percentage of um, low-income youth and girls, um, it's really low when it comes to bringing them up the pipeline in that regard. Yeah. And so um, we wanted to make sure that even though we are primarily on the other side, you know, mostly educators here are history and PLA educators, that we added aspects 
of art and design as well um, to our curriculum. And so what that looks like is we design for Google Code Next, for example. Um, we design a leadership curriculum teaching students how to be digital citizens. And there are a lot of ideation moments, um, engineering moments, where scholars are using high-order thinking and mathematics, um, even though it is a social-emotional curriculum. So that's, that's awesome. Kind of and yeah. I, th- I think it's great how you're, you're, you're adding in and correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you're, you're adding in different elements so you can basically get a wider array of, of students interested in, and really, yeah. and schools interested in what you're trying to do. Right. Yeah. It's a bridge. It's really a bridge. So the, one of the things on the league's website, you talk about the curriculum focuses on, on what you call scholars and not systems. Um, build upon what you're just talking about with the addition of design and steam at, as a whole. How does the, how does the traditional curriculum compare to what you're trying to do with schools? So um, a lot of what we believe in, you know, it's unconventional. Um, and I, I won't say this because I'm not going to get myself in trouble today. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> oh, no, no. You say, you say that. <laughs> Uh, there are certain schools that have, you know, scripted curriculum, and they're very by the book. They literally live by manual, and they, you know, don't believe in utilizing scholar context to modify. And so um, when we run into that, when we started this, uh, working on the Langston and League, we were running into that a lot. Principals who were, like, handing us Teach Like a Champion, who were handing us um, a responsive classroom book. And, and all of those are great texts and have great aspects, but... There is no book or edu fad that can encompass what your scholars need, like that all of what your scholars need, right? And so that was what we mean by placing emphasis on scholars and not systems. Right. And so when we created um, the way in which we take on a client, it really we really agreed that there had to be a full-on immersion so that we could really get to know students and build out something for that particular cohort or for that particular organization and so we had a, um, a school that came to us. We wanted to design a history curriculum that was um, decolonized and would engage their scholars um, because they were having difficulty in sheer text in ELA. And I remember, you know, pitching them the first lesson, and everyone in the room looked at us like we were crazy. It was a lesson <laughs> on Weeksville. It was a lesson on Weeksville in Brooklyn, which is uh, one of the first free towns in the United States. Uh-huh. And at the end of the lesson, the exit ticket was um, – Literally, the students become archaeologists. They're like buckets of soil with artifacts <laughs> in like plastic bags in the end, and they like pull them out with their hands and right. write down the information into a graphic organizer. And the principal was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, "Yep, yeah, we're this is it. This, <laughs> like, this is your exit ticket. We're going to do this once a week on your flex days." And so we did it for six weeks, and like the engagement was insane. As the ticket scores were really high and the principal called us and said, I have no idea why that worked, but it did. <laughs> uh, we have a really great relationship with that school. So that's what we mean by scholars and systems. We noticed that we, they had a lot of scholars who had a um, social learning style and they had, they had to be hands on the kinesthetic. They had to move. And so, you know, we took that profile into consideration when building out their lessons. So, a couple months ago, maybe a year ago at this point, I wrote a like a piece for our our website called "Curriculum is not the answer." <laughs> it was a big, it was a big, it was, it was a big bummer. Yeah, anyway. but no, but so I I think where I was at that time and what I essentially argued was that um, you know, it came down a lot to individuals in the classroom, um, in terms of teachers, I should say, individual teachers, and getting mm-hmm. kids to believe in them and what they were selling and um. 
And I, I guess what I was saying is there was no curriculum that could make a sort of, uh, you know, like a fake teacher that the kids didn't believe in. Like all of a sudden they're like, oh no, you're, you're great. So I guess the, my question is, you know, where is, well, one, where did I go wrong? Tell me that. And, and two, like, mm-hmm. where is that intersection of, of teachers and individuals and curriculum? Like, where is that sweet spot? I mean, we have to, you know, that's the first conversation that we have because people often conflate like cultural responsiveness and relevance. Like, it can be relevant. It doesn't mean that you're being responsive to that particular individual. Right. And so we have to sit with clients and let them know that, you know, at the end of the day, we can write the most amazing, intriguing curriculum. Um, if your educators are not engaging, if they're not giving scholars voice, if there's no differentiation, if there is an access, if there is a connection, right. if there is a social justice, a social justice access aspect, if there is engaging education, if your educator is not a great storyteller or has something that is pulling the scholars in, the kids are going to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> we let them know that. Right. And so it's important that when anyone gets curriculum from us, that we put on a full-on professional development to show them how we enact the curriculum, and we also um, make sure that we stay around a while. We're not just going to give you a pack and bounce. Like, we're there right. for a few weeks. We're watching. We're coaching, right? Um, and hopefully, well, most of the times, administrators pick up on what we do, and then they carry on the work. Um, and so that, for me, is the intersection, is, like, really internalizing what you're teaching, falling in love with it, so that the, because ultimately the kids love what we love. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And so, yeah, true. yeah, that's what it is. Right. And so we create really, I would say the instructional material that we create, it's fun for the teachers, <laughs> yeah. which is, which is why the kids really enjoy it. And, and I was, I say this to my new teachers all the time where it's, um, if you're not having fun with it, the kids are going to, they smell it. They know it. Yeah. They know that you're not having fun. Yeah. They know that you think it's boring. So, so you gotta you gotta make it exciting and for yet, them. And yet, we do everything yeah. we can to suck the joy out of, out of teaching. <laughs> That's usually something that I say. Okay. Um, so uh, you got me all fired up, Erica. Listening to you, it's exciting. Um, we could have had her on the show about the passionate, the passion yeah. teaching is teaching a passion. Yes, we, we could be have. we could be talking wow. about that. Yep, yep. yep. So I have so many questions. So. I, I'm I'm picking up that a part of what you do, um, or the Langston League does, is is really kind of school reform in some ways. So, what mm-hmm. are, what what other kind of elements um, goes al- go along with this? I'm curious. Do you w- the the work that you do with schools? Is it about how teachers are arranged and and how they collaborate with one another? How how kids are grouped. I mean, are there other implications for organizational structures and the way that schools are set up that you guys get into that the Langston League has an impact on? So absolutely. Um, there's, there's definitely been instructional material we've created that required educators that don't necessarily work together or don't normally work together to work together. Right. Um, and so if we're creating um, the history of music, right, we'll have um, – the history teacher and the music teacher work together and like we'll have to push the principal to create a prep block Got for it. them to internalize this work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to differentiating, we have to one of the craziest things that we had to design this year um, was seating arrangements and like the explanation of them in mm-hmm. a very gamified way. So like the runway, like putting on a show and like the clusters, things that you think are common knowledge for teachers, but when you have like all of these teacher programs churning out 
educators who are internalizing the same text. And they kind right. of forget what got them to this, like, oh, I want to teach place in the right. first place, right. right? Because we all want to teach because somebody gave us this right. incredible lesson. We're like, yeah. oh, I want to do that. And somewhere along the line, it gets lost, right? It wasn't so it, we it, it wasn't because we were sitting in rows, like, bored out of <laughs> no. our minds, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, shared right. That with, I shared that with all my teachers, by the way, the, 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 all the seating charts you tweeted. Yeah. I sh- it, it's, it oh, was- yeah, those were – yeah, I saw those. Those were amazing. Yeah. Erica. Yeah. Anyway, sorry we interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> It's okay. But, you know, it was because uh, my junior uh, year, my teacher, Mr. Bowman, taught night by Eli Wiesel and, like, stood on his desk and read passages in this really passionate voice. And I was like, oh, I want to do that, right? <laughs> and I never lost sight of that. But then when I coach educators, I realized that they do sign it. And so we have to teach these basic things, right, to kind of get them to understand the reason why the curriculum isn't working. It's not, sometimes it's not because you're born. It's not because it's not engaging but you can't even actively monitor because you can't get through your classroom, <laughs> right? Your, your desk was crazy. Like, simple things will rectify. So it varies, which is why we have to immerse ourselves. Right. And so let me let me kind of back way out here, and um, you can just totally say if I'm way off base, but it sounds like one of the things that you guys do and, and maybe advocate for is, like, super um, decentralization of curriculum and working with schools where each school is um, really reflective of the immediate community that it's based in um, yeah. and the students that it serves. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah so, the, the learning is in the kit is in the scholar, not in the system. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So let's, mm-hmm. so let's back out. I mean, is that a sort of approach, you know, whether it's within New York city, New York state nationally, that you would advocate for is just kind of the backing off generally of whether it's the Department of Education or, um, you know, state education departments to really give lots of control to individual schools. I mean, have you have you guys thought or talked about that at all? I mean, we haven't. Um, we've been approached by a few uh, depart- uh, state departments of education, um, and then we get into those meetings. We get into a lot of discussions where we don't agree on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I do. I would say that um, that's what's worked for us. When we see our scores go up, it's because we've immersed ourselves in a school and created um, instructional material and, you know, not systems, but, you know, we've revolutionized a room or the way a teacher instructs based on the kids. Right. So yeah. what they're excited about, what they'd like to learn, where they're from. Like we go into schools and, you know, the percentage of Latinx students would be 90 percent. And there there is nothing to reflect who they are in the central text, in, sure. on the wall. And like there's no Hispanic heritage. And, there's no, and I'm like, how is this possible? <laughs> you want me to engage and you have nothing that reflects who I am in any regard. Right. right? Not even an affirmation was like you know, a Spanish word or two, like, come on, right? And right. so that's where we come in, and administrators have a difficult time hearing that, And but when they hear it, and you see the percentage, we, we have the focus groups, and we bring back our report. It's a reality that most of, you know, I would say about 99% of the administrators say, wow, you guys are right. So what, so, need to fix that. <laughs> yeah. so the inevitable question is, is when you're sitting with those suits or you're in those meetings, or you're just working with a school who... Obviously, they want to produce better outcomes. They want kids to learn more. Um, talk, talk a little bit about 
uh, when all goes right, what, what kind of outcomes have you seen produced? So I would say about 90% of our clients have seen um, an increase on several different things. So school culture, right? Mm -hmm. We had a school that we went into and we designed um, two workshops. One workshop was about a new student orientation workshop because they were a pipeline charter that removed a lot of students. I don't know if it removed, but maybe the kids moved or what have you. And we realized that their issue was they had all these new students coming in from different schools in that city. And the pipeline students were kind of, there was some tension between the new students. And we're like, okay, so you've created all of this culture and these systems and these signals for these kids. And then you throw kid, new kids into the mix. They have no orientation. They have mm. no idea how right. these systems work. Right. right. And, you know, the principal was like, oh, you're right. And like, <laughs> so we had to create like an onboarding for the kids that where they sit with the counselor. They had like a small group. They had a peer um, they, that introduced them to the school for two weeks and taught them different things. And the suspensions were, I would say about 65% of the suspensions were the new students. It went all the way down to like 11% by the end of that year. So before Casey gets to his quiz show, which we have no idea what he's going to ask you, by the way, <laughs> um, I'd also like to point out that Robbie just referred to you sitting with administrators as suits. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, that's totally yeah. Robbie. <laughs> No, she was talking about. Been. She was talking about. She was talking about the, the higher level people than principals. Okay. Anyway, so you're yeah. not a suit, is what I, you're saying? I will okay. not classify. Okay, myself. just wanted to make sure. Okay. All right, all right, Casey. So, all right, Casey. Uh, so, Erica, first of all, thanks for coming on the show, and we're very happy to have you here. And uh, so, uh, so Erica. You became mm -hmm. famous teacher, became a famous YouTube star when you covered the Bodak Yellow song by Cardi oh, B. God. Okay? Oh, now, my, my daughter yeah. loves Cardi it's, B. It's okay. the be she sings it with her kids. It's the best thing on the face of the earth. Okay. Uh, so we want to know, or I want to know, how much do you know about, not Bodak, but Eastman Kodak Company? <laughs> The now ubiquitous Nothing. and once bankrupt camera and film company. Oh, so I have like three questions. That's right. Yeah, there. I have three <laughs> questions for you. I said Eastman okay. because there's a question about Eastman. Anyway, so number one, where did the name Kodak come from? And I have multiple choice for you. I don't give it to my co-host. Okay. <laughs> the original founder of Kodak was a major fan of Dungeons and Dragons, especially the character Bodak. That's A. Is it B? The name Kodak is meaningless and was chosen because it was impossible to mispronounce and dissimilar to any existing words. Or is it C? George Eastman, one of the founders, was born and raised in Kodiak, Alaska. But when he filed for his copyright, the patent clerk spelled it incorrectly. You can phone a friend. <laughs> or should I like okay. Because no, 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 no. Crable and I have no idea. One of them was like, it came out of nowhere. I really feel like that's what it was. That's B. That Kodak na was name is meaningless. That's correct. Hey, Completely hey, meaningless. Yes. Well done. Well done. Well done. I thought it was a person. Bob it's Kodak. Not. Bob Kodak. It's not. Number two. T tell me that these the last Sounds two are going to be shorter. Go ahead. Okay. You are such a Debbie yeah. Downer. I'm going to kick you out of your own house. There you go. Number two. When World War One broke out, George Eastman, the founder of Kodak, helped the military by making what? Is it A? Unbreakable lenses for airplane photography, B, unbreakable lenses for gas masks, or C, unbreakable lenses for kaleidoscopes. 
Those are good ones. Uh, okay, let me get those one more time. Unbreakable oh. lenses for airline photography. Unbreakable okay. lenses for gas masks or unbreakable lenses for kaleidoscopes. Airline photography. Ooh, close. Gas, gas masks. masks. <laughs> gas masks. Oh, okay. He did develop some photography for, for airplanes. Anyway. Okay. You know. All right. All right. Okay. You have one more chance to get two out of three. Okay. There's a lot of money involved That's here. Right. A lot of money. A lot of prizes. Number three. Which, <laughs> which musician wrote a song called Kodachrome about the film of the same name? In 1973, it made number nine in the U.S. charts. Oh, and I will give you a hint. Can I give Eric a hint? No. A, <laughs> Paul Simon, B, Nina Simone, or C, the Pointer Sisters? Oh, Paul Simon, because I know Pointer Sisters. And oh, Nina that is correct. Right, Eric. Uh, one, two yeah. out of three. With the, he's, she got the oh, New Yorker God. there at the end. Very nicely done. The Pointer Sisters. Man, I haven't thought about them in forever. I had to just search up random people from the 70s. <laughs> they had like an awesome song. I <laughs> thought it was like the early 80s. The Pointer Sisters? Yeah. yeah. More than one. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I had a tape they're, of theirs. They're, they're young millennials. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Erica. Erica's at my age. I know, she is. So, Erica, thank you so much for coming on and and dealing with that quiz, especially for me. That was very special for me, so I appreciate it. I (laughs) threw it on the the co-host. They didn't know. All right. I'm glad I passed. (laughs) Yes, you did. You did now. Erica, uh, for our listeners, where can people find you and follow you and get the full thrust of all that you're doing in education? Oh, Twitter.com slash Erica Bennington or Twitter.com slash Langston League. Okay. So make sure you follow. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. If you're not following, start following Eric to Erica Buddington. She's she's amazing, and we're going to get you back on the show in the future. Thanks again, Erica. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right.